Well, three weeks ago, I had the distinct honor to be a speaker at Lake Ann Camp. I was on the Fresh Start program, and I was able to speak to students going from eighth grade into the ninth grade. And uh, Lake Ann is one of the Christian camps we send our students to attend every summer. I call Lake Ann Baptist Camp the, a, a five-day shot of evangelical adrenaline. Have you ever watched one of those shows, your favorite character is close to death, they're almost dead, and somebody takes a huge hypodermic needle full of adrenaline, sticks it in their chest, and they come alive. That's what Lake Ann Camp is for students and teens on a spiritual level. The goal of camp is very simple. It's to take students out of the normal, ho-hum, everyday monotony of their boring, gray world that is often clogged with hours of mind-killing social media while they sit on the couch eating hot Cheetos and Sour Patch Kids. You, the parents pull them out of, how, out of the house, send them to a faraway, magical land up north so they can get a soul-rousing injection of Jesus for one week. That's the point. From sunup to sundown, students at Lake Ann are exposed to high energy, stimulating spirituality, tons of fun games, engaging speakers, and cool counselors all week long to awake the students to the wonder of Jesus. That's the whole point. Everything culminates, however, on the last night, the very last night. And most camps do this in summer camp. Under the twinkling of bright, shining stars, with the cicadas chirping in the surrounding patches of pine trees, a giant bonfire is lit in orange flame, and it is called the Glory Bowl. The Glory Bowl is the place where students can give glory to God. They'll come up on a microphone and declare their bold new allegiance to Jesus after a week of incredible spiritual adrenaline. You have one Young, weepy-eyed, junior-high girl say, I've given my life to Jesus for the first time here. Or a buzz-cut, broad-shouldered senior high football player, I've decided to commit to full-time missions. And then every once in a while, you'll just have a blue-haired teen girl with a large group around her. I just love you guys. It's exciting. Two hours of sheer excitement around the glory bowl. The, the excitement of Christ and the Spirit is palpable. You're on a spiritual high and you think to yourself in those two hours, Jesus has got to love this. He's got to love this. And then the next day comes. Sleepy-eyed and bone-tired students come rolling out of their cabins like heavy logs and slide quietly into the back seat of their parents' SUV as they head home to re-enter the world of the mundane. The unspoken question on a heart haunts both student and parents. Will the previous night's glory bowl commitments stick? Or was this past week all a fanciful dream buoyed up by the sheer hype and manufactured adrenaline of summer camp? When the singing, preaching, and running down the sloping Sleeping Bear Dunes is all over, what spiritual results will remain in the student's life? When words are no more, what continues on? 
That's the question for today. When words are no more. Because in a similar vein, we're coming to the end of Jesus' public life. No more fabulous miracles would be performed. No more weddings where waters turned to wine. No more spellbinding speeches on the top of mountains. No more fishing expeditions with the click of the creator's finger. Golden fish just miraculously appear in the nets. Now is the season of Christ's life when words are done. When they're no more. What will those who've been following him up to this point do? Will they stay strong or run from the faith with their tail between their legs at the first sign of trouble? We're going to find out, starting in Matthew 26, 1 through 16. So if you can follow along, let's begin with verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, that's specifically in reference to the Last sermon, the Olivet Discourse, and really it's everything. When Jesus is done, he was done with his public ministry, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days, two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus takes a very serious tone. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This is the sixth time he predicted his death. But now it's only two days away. For those who've been following Jesus, the hype is over and it's time. Time to decide what you really believe. As with everything in life, what we're going to see, there comes a point when words have run out. And decisions must be expressed in deeds. And it is in your deeds, in what you do, the behavior you choose to perform, it's in your deeds where your heart is revealed. As they say, actions speak louder than words. And it's no truer than following Jesus. And so what we're going to find in this section from 1 through 16 are three types of hearts that are going to be exposed by their deeds. And they each respond differently to Jesus in the news of the cross. These three types of hearts are also present here in this auditorium today. Sitting in our congregation at this moment are three types of people. But the thing about church is hearts are always hidden and actors with masks abound. So I'm going to ask you during this message, because this is for you individually, not for anybody else sitting around you, I'm going to ask you to evaluate your own heart and consider how you are responding to the person of Jesus in your life, specifically when it comes to his work on the cross, when he asked you to deny yourself, pick up his cross, and follow him. How does your heart respond? Because words are easy, and they cost relatively nothing. Like a puff of smoke from your grandfather's cigar, once words are spoken, they quickly fade away. But it is your deeds that remain. 
So the first kind of heart we're going to look at is found in verses 3 through 5. Look at verse 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest. So the leaders of Israel, Pharisees, Sadducees, lawyers of Jewish law, assembled together. And they were in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, oh, no, no. Or there may be a riot among the people because Jesus was quite popular. I mean, who wouldn't be when he would raise the dead? But they're gathered together, and these chief priests represent the first kind of heart, which is stone hearts. They're stone hearts. Stone hearts behave just as they sound. When it comes to following the person of Jesus, they're cold, they're stiff, they're immovable, and they're hard. Stone-hearted people, as displayed by the Pharisees all through the Gospels, believe they've already arrived. They don't need Jesus to interfere. They are people who are content with life as it is. I like my life. Leave it alone. Especially Jesus. Leave it alone. I would say stone-hearted people believe they are the masters of their own domain. And in their minds... In this moment, they're living, humanly speaking, good lives. I don't need to change. That's how the Pharisees were. They like their lot in life. Often they have plenty of money, prestige, position, and importance. And the last thing they need is some busybody named Jesus to come and mess up the good life they've got going. Stone-hearted people don't want to change. That's basically the point. They've worked hard to get to a position, usually of importance. Some will say, hey, I've been, not my fault I was born in a pleasant place. God ordained it. They are chosen, special, better people who are very happy with their status. If uh, Pink Floyd could write a song about them, they'd sing it like this. Hey, Jesus, leave those kids alone. <laughs> That's the song that goes in their heart. Of course, um, of course, there are another side of hard-hearted people, people who don't really like their life necessarily. I mean, they're not necessarily important or, you know, as prestigious as the Pharisees. However, they love their sin. And because they love their sin, they also don't want Jesus interfering and telling them what to do. So you could say it like this. When it comes to Jesus and the deeds of stone-hearted people, people, stone-hearted people of all stripe agree, Jesus just needs to be silenced. And if they had the guts to really express what they felt about Jesus, they would just tell him to shut up. I mean, look at verse 4. And they plotted to arrest Jesus and kill him. They wanted him silent. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. And if you have a stone heart, the same attitude that the Pharisees had is in your heart. You may be thinking, I don't want to kill Jesus. I don't. I really don't. Ah, but you want to silence him. You don't want to listen to him. And here's the three ways I would say that Jesus' voice is silenced in the stone-hearted person's life. First is they just ignore his word. 
They ignore the Spirit's conviction. They ignore the teachings of the church. They ignore the warnings of their mom and dad. They ignore the advice of godly friends. They ignore the consequences and pain they've caused when they indulge in sin. Stone hearts ignore the voice of God. How do you know you have a stone heart? You just don't care. They also avoid moments in life when Jesus speaks. Modern day Americans are masters at finding other things to drown out the voice of God. Distractions constantly drip in our frivolous culture. The constant noise of amusement thumps like a big bass woofer in the backseat of a cool kid's Camaro. Boom, boom, it's always pounding. Got to do something. Got to be here. Got to, I have to have this weekend filled up. While play and recreation fill in all the extra crevices of time where God is wanting to whisper. How do I know this? Because God's Spirit truthfully recently convicted me of my incessant internet searching. It had me in its grips for a while. You know, I call it the algorithm blues. What are the algorithm blues? Video after video keeps queuing up on my iPhone or my iPad server, and it has me hooked. When it has me hooked, goodbye prayer, goodbye reading, goodbye calling a friend that's hurting, hello YouTube. And I know that hurts the heart of Jesus. And I would say the hardest stone heart ultimately mocks the voices of God's conviction. Because stone hearts hate conviction. Question, why then would some people still come to church if they had stone hearts? Because there's some people in here right now I know of stone hearts. Well, let's be honest. First of all, if somebody in here has a stone heart, they're probably not listening, so we can talk about them in front of their back, <laughs> not behind their back. Stone-hearted people act a part of the Christian because they want to maintain their status. Some want to control others. They like leadership positions. So in the church, they see a place to exert more control or just get attention. But I'll tell you, when stone-hearted people are not given titles, honors, or attention, they'll leave. They'll leave. The second kind of heart is the soft heart. We find the soft heart in verses 6 through 13. Listen to the story. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. That means they were pretty upset, really upset, red-hot upset. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price. And we could have given the money to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And we've just fulfilled a prophecy right now. So this is the soft heart. 
The book of Mark and John provides more details to the story. And we find out that this lady is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. We know from the other gospel accounts that Mary loves sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his stories. And now after hearing about his coming death, which Jesus just predicted at the beginning of this chapter, and probably in, there, in the house of Simon the leper, something inside of Mary compelled her to break her alabaster jar of expensive perfume, myrrh perfume, pour it over the head of Jesus, also on his feet. And the disciples were aghast. Like, why would you do that? Because according to Mark, that perfume cost one whole year's wage. A whole year's wage. That's a lot of money. That's crazy. Can you imagine pouring out a whole year's worth of perfume in a single moment? Crash, there it goes. That's a whole year's worth money. It's nuts. But Mary had a heart as soft as a downy chick. It was kind and sensitive and responded immediately to the work of God's spirit in her heart. The spirit was alive in her heart. She probably didn't even know what she was doing, I would say when she broke the jar, but she loved Jesus and she's willing to do all she could to express her love and adoration to him. A soft heart loves Jesus more than anything. You could say a stone heart is very pragmatic about the things of this world, but a soft-hearted person often almost seems like they act irrationally. Why would you do that? Why would you spend and waste that money? Because I love Jesus. Love does that, and Mary sees in Christ everything she ever wanted. Who cares about a year's wage? When you have Jesus with you, he is the beauty of God in flesh. He's everything. I think just for a second, we have to stop. And ask at this moment, what is it about Jesus that would compel a person to act so recklessly? Like, that's real reckless love, like that book, that song says. Why would love for Jesus cause someone to waste such a valuable item in the rush of the moment? Well, to Mary, Jesus was the pearl of great price. She found it. Jesus was everything. And my question is, what did she find in Jesus that would compel her to sell everything? Or what was, what was it that was worth it in Jesus to give your whole life for? I, let me just give you some suggestions. I think in Mary, he was her savior. There's some question about her identity. Some people say this is actually Mary Magdalene. They are both from Bethany, and this Mary greatly loves. Why? Because she was greatly forgiven. Luke says Mary Magdalene had seven demons excised by Jesus. Demons usually grab a foothold through sin, through some serious sin in your life, and demons come in and grab a foothold, and she had seven of them. Jesus came, rescued her from oppression and damnation. Truthfully, Jesus saved me, me, from hell. I couldn't give him enough. He's life. 
Mary's brother Lazarus died and Jesus rose him from the dead and he said, I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the life. He is the prophet of God. You remember when Peter, everybody left and Jesus looking at Peter and said, why aren't you leaving? He said, Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. You tell me, does anybody have better words than Jesus? Name me one. He is the lover of my soul. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whosoever should believe on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the thing about this kind of love, there's no strings attached. I've never really been loved with no strings attached other than Jesus. Usually when somebody loves me, they expect something in return. He's my forever friend. I don't call you slaves, I call you friends. He's my master. I've been bought with a price, his blood, and he's the great king. Job said, for fear of his majesty, I could not sin. But I'll tell you, if you were to ask me, what is it about Jesus that causes me to be so enthralled and entranced by him, I would just say this, he is the true truth. He's just the truth. It's very simple. Let me give you an illustration. I can remember sitting with a student when I was a youth pastor, and the student was really being sucked into the party life, drinking, carousing. And he came into my office, and he's trying to convince himself that the party life was just, it was all a lie. It really wasn't that fun, and those who were sucked into the party life were just stupid. Remember him saying, it's just stupid. Isn't it just stupid? It's not fun. And I said, no, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. I mean, that's why people do it. And he said, well, if it's so fun, why don't you do it? And I said, you want to know the reason why? The reason why I don't drink and party has nothing to do whether it's fun or not. Nothing to do with that. The reason I don't, the reason I don't, is because Jesus made me a promise in the Bible. Those who honor me, I will honor. And he's always good on his promises. He has a purpose for me greater than pouring my life down a glass of beer. He's got a life for me, not one of leisure and frivolous stupidity where all I'm trying to do is just have fun. He has a purpose for me. He made me in his image to display the glory of the Father. I want that. He is reality. He is what is. He remains while the world eventually fades away. He's unshakable. He is it. And I want that. And let me tell you, the reason why I serve at the church and give what I can to the advancement of his kingdom is that there's no other place I'd rather be. Well, you have the final kind of heart in verses 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priests and he asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. Actually, it's not much. It's the price of a slave. 30 silver coins. 
From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. The final kind of heart that we have just read about is the lying heart. It's the heart that lies. So here you have Judas. So for three and a half years, he followed Jesus, just like the other disciples. He looked apart, just like the other disciples. And I'm sure he actually believed Jesus was who he said he was, just like the other disciples. But unlike the others, he was only following Jesus to cash in for himself. He used Jesus to get what he wanted. Let me say that again. A lying heart uses Jesus to get what they want. And the moment he heard Jesus was voluntarily allowing himself to be led to the cross and slaughter, he wanted off this ride. I'm done. I'm done. He rode Jesus' coattails as far as he could. Now Judas said, it's time to fend for myself. Why would he do this? Because he had a lying heart. And people who are ruled by lying hearts will also use Jesus to get what they want from him in the moment. But once they are asked to sacrifice or suffer, they're out. Deal's off, man. I didn't ask for this. I thought I was following Jesus because he gave me things. You want me to suffer? I'm out. I'm out. This group of people will often look the parts, sing the songs, pray the prayers, preach even from the pulpits. And they are quick to get excited at camp. But once the thrill is over and words are no more, they bail. The lion hearts described in Jeremiah, it says this, it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's the heart of Judas. And I would say people of today with lying hearts will go, still go to church, they will, but most of the time it's for the buzz, for the buzz or the warm fuzzies, one person said. They also like to make an impression on others, wanting them to think they're godly. But in truth, they're only lying to themselves, actually believing they can manipulate God with their impressive charade. The lying heart actually believes if I play the part, God will buy it. He'll buy it. It's often hard for regular people to tell who is a lying heart. and Sometimes the heart is such a good liar that it even convinces itself it's genuine. That's the danger. So we have to ask one more question. And it's revealed here in this. Here's the question. How can a person really detect a lying heart? If you look closely at all these stories, it comes down to one major indicator. And I'll ask the question like this. What speaks the loudest when words are no more? Your wallet. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so each heart in the story, look how they deal with money. So first you have the Pharisees and leaders of the people. They were already pretty wealthy. Most came from families of, of prestige with wealth. And it bought them a lot of title, honor, status. And that's why I think to some degree they had huge contempt for Jesus. Remember when Jesus first started his ministry, Nathaniel said, where's he from, Nazareth? Does anything good come from there? Because Nazareth was a backwater town. Think um, trailer parks and 
greasy spoons kind of a town. No real leader of the Jewish community would come from there. I believe that's why Jesus made him so mad. He didn't care about status, and he often talked about the love of money will rot the soul. They didn't like that. When it comes to Mary and money, the soft heart, it's clear she's willing to give up all her wealth for the love of Jesus. When she heard Jesus say he was going to be crucified, it probably cut her to the heart and caused her to say, hey, 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 I have burial ointment. I don't even know. Here, I'll pour it on you, Jesus. Here, you can have it. Whatever you need. It's the same with every soft-hearted believer. Hey, God says the fields are ripe in the harvest. Send me. He says that there's people who are hungry, thirsty, a stranger, sick, in jail, naked. What can I do to help? And in love, they give. But then you got Judas, the lying heart. First of all, we see Judas's heart when Mary broke the perfume. He was really the one that got mad. Go to the book of John. Look at John chapter 12, 3 through 6. This gives you more details, and just, boy, this is very exposing, because liars don't like their hearts exposed, but here, here's, Judas's heart is exposed in John 12, 3 to 6. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. He objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now look at verse 6. He did not say this because he cared about the poor. Hmm. But because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So, he objected because he wanted to pocket some of the proceeds for himself. It's interesting how he got probably some of the other disciples, hey, that money could have helped the poor. Yeah, 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 that's terrible. It sounds so virtuous. Sounds so virtuous. Who's going to object to that? You'd be a fool to object to that. But his virtue signaling by Judas was sneaky, low-down, self-indulgent. J. Vernon McGee says about this statement, I wonder how much the disciples really cared about the poor. They remind me of folk in our own contemporary society who are always talking about taking care of the poor but are doing nothing about themselves. So when Jesus says the poor will always be with you, the question is, what does he mean? Sounds so callous. But it's really a statement that is obvious. He's stating the way reality is. And he's kind of implying um, that if you want to take care of the poor, they're all around. Go right ahead. Nobody's stopping you. Nobody's stopping you. You could do it just this moment. And just as a quick side note, last week Trevor pointed out something very interesting in his sermon on Matthew 25. When Jesus commended those who fed the hungry and gave to the thirsty, they were surprised that he noticed because giving to others wasn't anything special. 
It was just a normal way of life for them. It was not a political platform. It was, a can it was not a campaign or rally slogan. It wasn't a paper written by some Ivy League sociology major. It came out of the overflow of their heart. They didn't need to broadcast how compassionate they were. And did you know, just a quick side note, it's easy to spend other people's tax money without actually loving the poor. And often broadcasting giving to the poor becomes the highest value of the self-impressed. But true soft-hearted people will give their own money to others and they will keep it on the down low because there's a principle. Don't ever let your right hand know what your left hand know what your right hand's doing. So if we go back to Judas, instead of following Jesus and going to the cross with him, he left at the first lucrative chance when the going and the getting was good. But in hindsight, it was only 30 silver pieces. Not that much. And many people in our own day and age leave Jesus for far less. A few beers, a one-night stand, continual fishing trips with the fellas. Judas's lying heart used Jesus for his own gain. Same with the lying hearts, which ultimately end in their destruction. So the question is, then what kind of heart do you have? That's the question. Is it hard, immovable, as stone cemented in concrete, where I don't need anything, I don't need to listen. You don't need to tell me. Who do you think you are? Are you soft as pizza dough before it goes into the oven, where you're moldable, you'll do whatever the Spirit of God tells you to do? Or is it lying, crafty, and it's wandering? Does it always look for the best opportunity available? When I was, uh, before I was senior pastor, I was youth pastor. I don't know if any of you remember, back in the day of youth pastor, we would have what are called victory parties. After the football game, we'd go out to the fields and the pine trees where they're growing Christmas trees. We'd have these big parties and we'd have a big bonfire at the end, we'd have a student give a testimony, then we'd ask people to give their hearts to Christ. I did it for about seven and a half, eight years, and in that time, I, can't, I counted, I sat down one time, I counted, there were a lot of people, I think there was about 70 people that gave their heart to Christ, and I tried to remember them, and I tried to remember how many really stayed with Jesus. Not many. And then I thought about other events that we had, like Wednesday night Bible studies for senior high. And I can remember the people that would consistently come. And then I, can, I started writing down which kids were really continuing in the faith after years and years or who are still ministering. They were the ones that often wouldn't go up during the bonfires. They were usually serving pizza during the bonfires. They um, also would come like Sunday nights when it's, rather boring. I'd talk about some rather boring subjects. They usually, however, had a dad that believed and served at this church. Moms too, but there's something about a mom and a dad that sticks. Hype does not stick. Words aren't that important. But day by day, week after week, deeds, it sticks. 
When words are no more, where are you?